listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 19 of Footprints on Our Hearts. It's been nearly two weeks since I recorded an intro, so this one might be slightly longer than normal. And it's also been a very emotional couple of weeks for me, both due to it being Sky's first birthday and also all the world events and protests and everything that's been going on this week, which I'm sure can't have passed you by. But firstly, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to my solo show last week and messaged me about it. I was pretty nervous about putting it out. There's a lot that still feels quite raw about my experience. And I think like many of us, it's hard to let go of regrets about what I could have done or how I could have felt differently about things. But I really wanted to be open and honest with you as all my guests have been about kind of I guess every aspect of my experience and it's been really helpful and comforting to know that I'm not the only person who's felt like that and I think this got me thinking I think part of the reason baby loss can feel so isolating is because there are all these unpleasant and in some cases shameful thoughts and emotions that we don't really feel comfortable talking about, even to other people in the baby loss community. And sometimes you kind of wonder if you're going crazy, if you're a bad person, or, you know, if you should just be getting over things more quickly. But I think in reality, a lot of us do experience similar feelings. And it can be quite reassuring to hear that you're not the only person who's felt guilt, anger, envy or shame, that you're not the only person who's struggled with mental health or parenting a living child after loss, for example. And I hope that if you're someone listening to this who feels like that, I hope that the stories that I've helped share on this podcast help perhaps help you to feel a bit less alone in your feelings, um, you know, and to accept them for for what they are and you know not to think of yourself badly because you feel in a particular way about something as for sky's birthday my i guess my main takeaway was that for me it's it's not just a day it's not just a day that you lead up to and then it's over And I don't know if that's because of the nature of my experience or if that's someone that everyone feels. But for me, there were all the days that led up to it. And although Sky was born on a particular day, there was also the day we found out that she died. There was the day before that that we we think, as far as I can point it, you know, a couple of days earlier, that was probably the day that she died. There was, you know, the day we had to go into hospital to give birth to her. And then there was the day she was actually born because I had an overnight labor in hospital. So it really makes for, well, I guess a week, at least a week of 
those different thoughts and emotions and everything kind of leading up to and after that particular day. And I think I actually struggled more perhaps in the days immediately after her birthday than on the day itself. And I don't know if that's because there was maybe a bit of anticlimax or a renewed sense of loss. And I guess while obviously the messages and a lot of the messages we had from friends and family were focused on that one day, as mothers and fathers and grandparents and relatives, we remember and think of our babies every single day. So it felt, yeah, I don't know, just may perhaps felt a little bit odd. Um, and I think I was really grateful to chat to a friend who has also had her baby's first birthday recently. And she also said that actually she found it quite tough the week after. And that's kind of helped me, I think, sort of accept the feelings which I've been having um, and reassured me that, you know, I will feel better again soon. (laughs) I also want to say a huge thank you to everyone who entered Sky's birthday giveaway and huge thanks to this week's podcast guest, Frankie Brunker, for donating a copy of her book as part of the prize. And I'm delighted to announce that the winner was Robin, Teddy's mum. And I have sent you a message, Robin. So, you know, send me your details and I can get your prize to you as soon as the postal service allows, which <laughs> let's face it, it's um yeah, it's a little bit here and there nowadays. So it may not be all for a while, but hopefully they will prioritize your delivery. I will try and get that in the post soon. I also wanted, well, I just wanted to touch on the sort of wider world events that have been happening this week. And I'm sure many of you have felt, as I have, a sense of shock and perhaps a sense of something shifting in our world or our individual worldviews this week, because that's definitely been my experience. And I think, and it's hard for me to kind of separate what I've been feeling about my reaction to you know, the events have been happening in America um, and the deaths of many black Americans, you know, not just the recent ones which have been widely discussed, but, you know, for, for many years and those in the UK as well. And I find it at the moment, just because my feelings and I think I've just had so much grief and complex feelings, it's, it's kind of hard to separate what is what on that. But I have definitely, yeah, it's definitely affected me. And I think as a white privileged person, which I am, I found myself challenged again and again this week by views that have been expressed by both black and white people on social media and in various articles I've read. And, you know, I've never thought of myself as being racist, and I'm sure many of you feel the same. But what I've come to realise is that the things that are so ingrained in me from growing up and living in a predominantly white society, things that I'm not even aware exist, I'm not even aware they are part of me. And those, in some cases, those are things that I need to identify, explore, and unlearn, I guess. And honestly, that's made me feel quite uncomfortable. None of us like feeling that we're wrong. And I think we always want to think that we can understand and empathize with how other people feel. 
But we also know firsthand from our experiences with baby loss that there are things that you can't truly understand unless you have experienced them for yourself, which means that I can never truly understand what it is like to be a black person or any other person of colour in our society today, whether that's in the UK, the US or anywhere else in the world. And I think that kind of uncomfortable feeling is definitely part of white privilege. And I guess it's why, you know, it's natural. We, we want to push those uncomfortable feelings away. And that's part of the problem. Because I do think that I have a responsibility to try to understand to the best extent that I can, given my position, to unlearn those thoughts and beliefs that I'm not even aware yet exist, to challenge my own thinking and allow myself to be challenged and to accept the hurt and the uncomfortable feelings that come with that. And I think to try and continue to learn and not let this just be a week when, you know, I posted a black square on Instagram and and then moved on with my life because this has been, you know, this has been happening for hundreds, hundreds of years, Um, you know, thousands of years. In fact, it's not something that's new and it's not something that's going to go away or change overnight. And it also got me thinking again about my aims for the podcast, because, you know, when I started out, one of my primary aims was for it to be a diverse podcast. And while I have found a huge amount of diversity in the experiences of people, Um, and the stories of different babies that have been told, I had known that I have got a long way to go in terms of diversifying the voices who share those experiences. And that's particularly true given a few shocking statistics that kind of blew my mind. And I want to share those with you today. And these are statistics for the UK. I know there are statistics for the US and, and other countries out there, but this is just what I managed to find for the UK. Black women are five times more likely than white women in the UK to die during pregnancy or shortly after giving birth. Asian women are twice as likely to die, five times more likely. Black women are also up to twice as likely to have a stillborn baby and much more likely to have preterm births and lose their babies to SIDS. I'm just going to let you think about those statistics um, because I found them pretty shocking and also think and perhaps wonder about what is being done about them and that, I don't know, if those statistics perhaps applied to a group of white women, whether more would have been done to investigate and address the disparity and the causes of that. And I just wanted to finish um, this intro this week by giving a special shout out to another Baby Loss podcast, which is the Sisters in Loss podcast. And this this is one of the few podcasts I did manage to find after Sky's death when I was looking for podcasts about baby loss. It's been going for almost three years and it has over 150 interviews with black women and men who share their stories of pregnancy, infant loss, and infertility. And I think, you know, I think we can all benefit from listening to other people's stories. And maybe, I don't know, use the events this week as a catalyst to look at some of those other stories of the women who are 
have much greater odds of losing their babies and what they go through. So that's the Sisters in Loss podcast. You can find it whenever, wherever you listen to podcasts, and I will also include links in the show notes. Okay, that was a super long intro. <laughs> um, so I think it's definitely time to get on with today's interview. And this week is the second part of my interview with Frankie Brunker, author of the book, These Precious Little People. And you can listen to the first part of her story in episode 17, when she talks about her experience of being pregnant with and the death of her daughter, Esme, in 2013. Years later, after having two further children, she decided to write her book, These Precious Little People, to help parents talk to children of all ages, pardon me, about baby loss. So in this interview, or this section of the interview, we talk about her experience of grief, battling with self-doubt, shame and guilt, and how she talked both to her children and to her niece and nephew about Esme. So I hope you enjoy the episode and take care of yourselves this week. Welcome to this week's podcast and today I'm back again with Frankie to talk about part two of her story Um, and if you haven't listened to the previous episode I recommend you go back and listen to that where we talk about her daughter Esme and today we're going to pick up first of all in talking a bit about grief. So Frankie welcome back and could you tell us a bit about what was your experience of grief like in those early days after you lost Esme and how did that change over say the first six months? Hi so yeah I, I've i been thinking about this quite a lot because um, in the beginning it just felt like an absolute storm honestly. and I don't think there's a better way to describe it because I'd never experienced anything like this magnitude of devastation and shock it was just it completely imploded in our lives and um I think we were just flailing around for quite a long time just thinking what's what's going on how are we going to survive this and I think I used to liken it to sort of being shipwrecked and we were kind of scrabbling around for for the wreckage of the boat like okay okay so what can we cling on to and we basically clung on to each other for such a long time me and Mark and I just felt so so grateful to have him because he was so we just needed each other so much in those early days weeks months and I would have just felt utterly lost without him um we did have other people around us supporting us but they just felt like observers rather than people that we could actually truly lean on and rely on I think my even my mum who came to stay with us for a little bit she was doing cleaning she was making sure we were fed it's like yeah we we need you here to do that but (laughs) the real emotional support came from each other and I know not all couples experienced that so I felt I did feel very lucky that we had each other um we also we knew that we couldn't do it alone because it's a lot to put all of your um all of your emotional needs on one other person I think 
So we reached out to other people that had been through similar experiences. My older sister, trying to be helpful, she was directing me to these forums she'd found online. I was thinking, well, yeah, I can see why you have done that, but actually I don't I don't want to get sucked into that world because I'm worried that I'll never come out. You know, I'll just be online all the time thinking I need to find someone else who's experienced this same thing as me and what are you feeling today? And and I just thought I instinctively knew that's not going to help me, actually. I need to kind of have a way to still be in the world. And so when we were directed to the our local SANS group, that felt like it was going to be the real lifeline for us. So we went along to our first meeting less than two weeks after Esme died because we we worked out when the next meeting was. We were like, right, well, let's just go. And it was less than a week before Esme's funeral. It was October, so it was baby loss awareness stuff coming up. And so it all, all seemed to happen at quite an a good time that we were able to go to this SANS meeting and just meet other people. And I don't, um, I don't think I even really said anything in that first meeting. Um, the fact we were there together meant so much to me because I could just sit there and just hold Mark's hand and he just sat there holding, squeezing my hand back. And <laughs> we was just kind of thinking, Oh my God, this is really our life now kind of thing. Um, but those people that we met were so fantastic to talk to, hearing their stories and hearing about their lives now was just such a valuable insight into kind of, okay, so we can survive this. You know, you're six months down the line, you're a year ahead of us, you're five years ahead of us. You know, that there were all these markers that we could look for around the room, like, okay, so you're not sat there crumbling, crying all the time. That's good. You're actually laughing about something. So that's reassuring. That gives us a bit of hope. <laughs> that's maybe in our future. And um, I think it just helped us feel less like freaks as well. We didn't know anyone in our immediate family or friendship circles that this had happened to. And again, that sense of shame comes back. You know, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to go through life being, you know, this woman whose baby died? How can I, how can I have that as my identity? I'd been so looking forward to being this proud mum, showing off her baby and just embracing that life. I was so looking forward to it that I just thought, I, I don't want to be that woman whose baby died. But then I realized everyone in that room, no one wanted their baby to die. No one wanted to be in this club. Everyone talks about no one wants to join this club. It is so true. No one wants to be meeting people in that situation. But you just gravitate towards each other because you understand each other and you give each other hope that you will be able to, you know, form some semblance of a life from the wreckage and you will find joy and meaning. And there were people there that hadn't gone on to have other children. There were people there that had living children already. You know, there was a whole mixture of people. And that was really helpful as well, because I could see from this range of experience, you know, I don't know what the future holds for us. No one knew at that point. But whatever happens, we will just have to 
make it okay. We will have to survive it. And we were both very sure about that. We were, we were really in despair for a long time, but we talked a lot about how, you know, we have to go on. We have to keep living. However, much, however hard this is, however much it hurts, there's no, there's no other choice. We're not going to, you know, form a suicide pact and go and jump off a cliff because what good would that do? You know, that would just bring more pain and heartache to our family. But I will be honest and say we did feel so low that we didn't really want to be alive at various points. But we just kind of thought, well, it won't achieve anything doing that apart from bringing more pain and suffering and making Esme's life feel like it was even more of a waste in a way. So that was something we clung on to in those early days, like well, we'll just keep keep going, keep moving forwards. And I think you're you're quite quickly confronted with the brutal reality that the world does keep turning and things just go on around you. And I, in my NCT group, we were waiting for the news of another couple who were going to have a baby. And she had a due date of two days after my due date. And she was overdue by over two weeks. So it was like waiting, waiting, waiting for the news of, is this baby going to arrive safely? Are they going to be okay? And they did arrive okay. It wasn't a fantastic birth. It was, I haven't heard all the details, but from what she told me, it was a pretty traumatic birth, actually. But all we were focused on was, right, the baby's here and is alive. But that was another example to us of like, well, just because our baby died, it doesn't mean that anyone else's world is going to implode like ours. And other babies are arriving safely every day. And I don't know why. I don't know why it was our baby that had to die and not somebody else's. And it, it, I'm sure you felt similarly. You don't want other people's babies to die. Of course you don't. But there is this sort of baffle baffled feeling you're left with like well why us you know why are we the unlucky ones what have we done to deserve this and I think there was a lot of talk around that in those early days you know do you think this is something we've done do you think we deserve this and I think both of us were on the the same wavelength in terms of being able to dismiss each other's silly thoughts that came in without being you know kind of don't be silly but just sort of, well, I don't think so because, and sort of talking through it rationally. And I think that struck me quite early on that I'm quite a rational person. And so I was just really striving for meaning and um, an answer as to why it had happened. And we were both very focused on getting the post-mortem results. That was something that was really important to us. And did you find out, Did you were you given any reason for why Esme died or was it unexplained? It was unexplained. But when I go back through, because we have a printout of the post-mortem report, I haven't poured over it obsessively, but there have been times when I've revisited it and thought, hmm, is there anything here that I've missed? And she did explain in the post-mortem report, um, appointment that Esme's umbilical cord had been slightly more coiled than average but she was very she was very clear that that doesn't mean it's you know a death sentence because there's a range of what's normal and 
there's probably, you know, a million babies born a year that have a slightly more coiled umbilical cord and 99% of them will be fine. So you can't say that that was the reason she died. You can't pin it on that. And even if she did die because of that, you still have questions because you think, well, why, why the hell was her umbilical cord more coiled? What, how did that happen? You know, I, I think going to the SANS group was really useful for me from that perspective as well because I would sit there and I would hear these stories about why these babies died. And I think the vast majority did actually have some reason, but they were still sat there asking questions. Because, you know, if you have a placental abruption, well, why did my placenta abrupt? What, what the hell? You know, I didn't, I didn't have like a car crash. No one came at me with a sledgehammer and dislodged it. So why the hell did that happen to me and my baby? Or, you know, they went into spontaneous premature labor. No one knows why. Or their baby got into difficulties during labor and died. Why? And we'd come away and we'd say, like, oh, my God, we're we've been through an awful experience but can you imagine that being our story and it it's horrible to compare in that way but I think both of us sort of thought well for us there's no there's no one thing to get angry at or no one person to blame and we we did feel quite grateful that we couldn't sort of direct our rage at any one thing or person and the only disadvantage is that is that at times I would direct it internally at me because I'd think, well, it must be me uh, searching for the the logical reason for it. I would think, well, Esme was perfect. She was a healthy weight. She was perfectly formed. So it must be something that I did or didn't do. And so I returned to this torturing myself about when did she last move and was she moving normally? And But then I think over time, and I don't like that phrase, time as a healer, because I just don't think that's helpful for anyone. But time does give you the opportunity to explore those thoughts. And if you can do that in a safe space with someone you trust to talk to, it doesn't have to be a professional counsellor. It can be a family friend or someone in your family. But I think with a counsellor, you can really open up and just let out all of your darkest thoughts and fears. And you don't have to worry about them then knowing that about you because they don't know you <laughs> in real life. Um, and for me, seeing a professional counsellor, it was arranged through my workplace, it helped me unload a lot of that. And the counsellor was exploring that with me. And over time, I've revisited those conversations. So every time I sort of get sucked back into that spiral of self-doubt and shame and guilt I returned to those conversations I had with him in the early months after Esme died and he said well look even if there was something that you did that caused her death you did you want your baby to die and I said well no of course not and he said well that is what you need to remember you never did anything intentionally to cause your baby's death. That is what you need to hold on to. If you had thought for a second, if I do this, my baby will die, you wouldn't have done it. There may have been things you did where you thought, oh, well, pregnancy book says you should 
probably not do that or oh yeah make sure you get enough sleep or I remember one pregnancy book went on and on about this pregnancy diet I was like bloody hell screw that I'm I'm all about the the chicken pies and the pano chocolate I was just craving pastry a lot that was not in the pregnancy diet but I was sort of thinking well come on this is what my body is craving like surely my my baby is telling me it just really wants this so I was ignoring that advice largely um but you know if the pregnancy book had said to me if you don't follow this pregnancy diet then your baby will die of course I would have followed the pregnancy diet you know that's the point he was making yeah he was saying look there's no way you would have taken risks with your baby's health knowingly and you have to remember that you are a good man. You you did all that you could with the knowledge you had at the time. And that is something that I've really um, had to remind myself of a lot because that guilt, it bubbles up every so often. And you, also I've found that I have to have to be less self-centered about it you know it's not all about me <laughs> and there, there are plenty of horrible things that happen in the world that are beyond anyone's control and I you know I'm not this all-powerful all-knowing superhero man that has the ability to prevent every catastrophe and so there, there are times as a man that you have to just kind of shrug your shoulders and think well Oh, I didn't see that one coming. You know, when your kid falls over on a pavement, you don't curse yourself for, oh, I should have checked that bit of pavement more thoroughly for any trip hazards. You know, <laughs> you just accept that sometimes bad things happen and you just have to let, give yourself a bit of grace and give yourself some slack, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I think that's very true. I also think those feelings are very normal and very valid and I'm sure you know people who are listening to this can very much relate to those feelings of of guilt and shame and we talked uh in your in the last podcast um about how you were present at the birth of your both of your sister's children and you're obviously very close to your family um so she'd already had two children who were presumably kind of aware of Auntie Frankie's uh baby in her belly how how did your sister approach that and and did you feel that there was any impact on them from losing Esme yeah she um my my niece and nephew were very young at the time so my my niece was only 10 months old so she had no awareness (laughs) I can safely say um but my nephew who was three and a half he he had been very aware of the fact that I was pregnant and he my sister is someone who chats about things a lot with her children whether it's age appropriate or not so she she would be talking to him about oh what do you think what kind what kind of baby do you think auntie Frankie's going to have do you think they're going to have blonde hair and do you think they're going to be a girl or a boy and he'd said consistently it's a it's a girl it's a girl and we'd sort of joked about it like yeah how can he know but maybe he did and I sort of that's another nice memory I have of of my pregnancy you know like he I I feel like he had a connection with her (laughs) maybe inventing that in my head but I sort of I just have this feeling like he 
he knew her. He knew her. And when she died, he wasn't really, he wasn't devastated like we all were. But he saw his mum cry a lot. She was very open with them about her emotions and what she was feeling. And he understood that it was because Esme had died and he accepted it. And he didn't shy away from it, I suppose, is the best way to talk about it. Because, um, you know, some some kids will react quite badly to that. They might say, you know, mum, can you stop crying? You know, where's my mum? And <laughs> I want my normal mum back, that kind of thing. But he just seemed to, from what she's told me, he just seemed to sort of accept like, oh, yeah, you're feeling sad about Esme at the moment. It's, it is sad that she's died. And they would do things like listen to songs together that reminded us of Esme. You know, we played some songs at her funeral. And um, that became known as Esme's song. And they had little things that they would associate with her, like ladybirds and giraffes. And so it, and they would say, oh, yeah, do you think that ladybird is Esme when they saw one in the garden and things like this? And to me, that was so lovely that they that she could talk so freely about her and incorporate her in her in her children's lives. And they were they were okay with that. They they were fine. Um, but it's not always the case because we had other nephews on the other side of the family who, for various reasons, just didn't um, assimilate her into their lives in the same way. It was it was obvious. It was unsettling and upsetting. And so I think conversations just didn't happen around that. And. That was hard for me because I thought, oh, well, why can't you be like my sister and just talk about her so happily and and have her as part of your lives? But I, I think I spoke about it in the last episode that my my husband helped me realise you can't direct how other people are going to deal with it, how they're going to find ways to cope. My, my nephew on the other side of the family was, um, he just turned six. And I think that is an age where you are going to be more frightened about death because you're going to have a bit more awareness of the finality of it. I think for my three-and-a-half-year-old, he was sort of in a very imaginative imaginative phase of life where it's like, well, yeah, she's dead, but, hey, she's here as a ladybird now, so what's the big deal? (laughs) Whereas my nephew was like, oh, wow, so people can just die? Oh my gosh. And that was something that came out in games he would play. So I remember going around um, their house and he played this game with me and he said, oh, I've died. My heart stopped beating. And I know that's the wording they used with him to explain how Esme had died. They'd said, oh, her heart stopped beating and she died. And in my head, I was thinking, oh, how do I handle this and I just went along with it and I and I said oh no you died oh well you, that means you can't come alive again or are you tricking me is this just a game and I would sort of not try and discount the fact that he was talking about death but also I didn't want him to fixate on it and yeah it was a really strange time because I was I was really grappling with like how do I deal with all of this going on in my own head and then 
this these conversations are happening and yet they're not my children so I can't direct everything in a way that I would want it to go so I just have to trust that whatever they're doing in their family is right for them and I'd do things like I'd give them I gave them a present of um, a picture of, of me pregnant with Esme and the scan photo and her hand and footprints and it would really hurt my feelings if I would say to my nephew who had only been one and a bit when Esme died uh, when he was older I would say oh do you know who that picture is of and he'd say oh it's you are you pregnant with with Jago or Ayla though are they Jago or Ayla's handprints and I'd say oh no that's Esme's and he'd say who's Esme and that would be like a real dagger to my heart thinking well clearly you don't know who she is she's not spoken about in this family that's that was really hurtful to me but maybe she was and maybe in his mind you know he's only three or four that's as relevant as saying you know the bin man's coming it's like well yeah the bin man's here and then they've gone again I'm not going to think about them in my life you know yeah (laughs) It's it's not a it's not a tangible concept for a lot of young children it's not something they can really grasp hold of in their minds and for some children because it is a bit frightening because it is linked to, oh, my gosh, yeah. So you're telling me people can die and they don't ever come back? That's not good. Then it becomes a source of anxiety. And so you have to manage it all quite carefully and go and sort of follow the child's lead, I suppose. Just be aware of what they're comfortable with and how you're then going to have those conversations. Yeah, for sure. And just to turn this back to you now, so after Esme, you've since had two other children. When did you decide the time was right for you to start trying for another baby after Esme died? And how was your experience of pregnancy after loss? I think um, Mark and I had quite a lot of chat, uh, discussion around this after Esme died about you know if we would try for another baby. It wasn't when, it was kind of if at the first. And we wanted to wait till the post-mortem results because we wanted to figure out, you know, is this something that's happened to do with us and something that means it's, it's not a good idea for us to try for another baby because this is more likely to happen again, that kind of thing. And, um, after the post-mortem results appointment, we, we had quite a lot of uh, chats again because it didn't really give us, any answers so we were kind of none the wiser as to well yeah if you if you have another baby it'll all be fine and because it was this problem and we can fix that or whatever or we can look out for that next time do something about it so we didn't have a lot of reassurance that this this wouldn't happen again and for me it was very scary then to think about putting ourselves our hearts on the line that's what it felt like felt like wow how can we set ourselves up for such incredible pain all over again if we try for another baby and we are lucky enough to get pregnant again and then it dies you know how how are we ever going to survive that we're barely surviving this as it is so I was sort of projecting into the future thinking yeah but you know can we can we really handle that but Mark had quite a good way of looking at it. And he said, you know, we'd always talked about having more than one baby. And wouldn't it be so sad if the fact that Esme died 
meant that we didn't go on to try and realize that dream. And if Esme was here, we wouldn't be thinking about having a sibling for her right now, but but we would, we probably would have done in the future. So wouldn't it be so awful if her death meant that she didn't have any siblings either? And he kind of, him framing it like that helped me see it from a different perspective. And again, it was kind of a less selfish perspective in that he was sort of thinking of the future of our whole family and thinking, well, we don't want this to be like this this bomb that goes off and just destroys our entire family and all of our dreams are just obliterated. This is this is always going to be something that is hard and sad to deal with, but it doesn't have to mean the end of uh, our dream to have a child together and, and bring them up together. And I was sort of thinking more along the lines of, right, well, why don't we adopt? You know, <laughs> that, might, that might be the easier way. Of course, that's ridiculous because adoption is a very lengthy, involved heartbreaking process for all involved because it in you know there's there's loads of complex things you have to take into account it's not the easy option um but in my mind at that point it was and I said well okay I'll agree to try for another baby but if we don't get pregnant after six months can we then really talk seriously about adoption because I know how stressful I found it getting pregnant even the first time even when you know we had none of this in our minds and so sort of prolonging it and try keep trying keep trying keep trying or even you know thinking about embarking on IVF things like that I just I just instinctively knew I'm not going to be able to handle that uncertainty and the stress and in my mind adoption was kind of the yeah well it's not going to be plain sailing but you've got more chance of a living child at the end of it kind of thing um, so he did agree to that, knowing full well that that's not what he wanted. Actually, <laughs> but, you know, he was so right last time about how quickly you got pregnant. So he was obviously uh, banking on it happening the same. Yeah, he just knew that he his super sperm would come to save the day. Yeah, <laughs> good little swimmers there. Yeah. So we um, we talked in our post mortem results appointment about when might when might be um, a good time to try again. You know, how much time would I need for my body to heal and be ready and all that kind of thing? And the consultant had said, oh, we, we advise around six months. And I was quite, I sort of pushed back a bit and said, well, what, what's with the six months, Mark? Like, what, why do you say that? She said, well, it's more kind of psychologically that's a better time because if you conceive around the same time you did last time, like it's, it, every woman's body is different, so it's going to take time for it to adjust back to being ready to fall pregnant again but say you know your cycle has gone back to normal after around three months and then you conceive your baby is going to have a very similar due date to the baby who died so just think about how difficult that might be and and in my mind I was sort of thinking you're a lunatic because it's going to be impossibly hard whatever it doesn't matter the time of year that we fall pregnant or whatever, it's it's just gonna be really hard. But I think looking back, there was some wisdom to <laughs> to her words. And um I think because I fell pregnant uh, very slightly slightly later on in the year um to Esme, but 
because of the the knowledge that we were going to be induced early and all of those kind of things, we were going to have a similar due date to Esme. And being pregnant at exactly the same time of year and all of, and it being so fresh in our minds as well, it I think that did add a more challenging aspect to it possibly. I, I, how can I say? Because we can't go back and re- redo it. But it did, there was this sort of weird sense of deja vu through the whole pregnancy because I think, I don't know if you feel the same because I know Sky's anniversary is approaching, but it's just seasonal reminders, isn't it? It's just kind of, oh yeah, when the air gets warmer or for me, it was when, when the air gets cooler, this is what was happening last time because it was sort of as the summer turned into autumn, it's kind of, oh shit, yeah, this is... I remember this sort of thing. And it's almost like your body, it's not even just your mind, it's like your body knows. And my younger sister has talked about this as well. You know, she wasn't even the one pregnant, but for her, seeing leaves turn autumnal, she just thinks about that time of year and how awful it was hearing about Esme dying. It just brings a lot of that back for her. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for me, it's coming into summer. <laughs> because that's when that's when my belly started getting bigger and we started thinking about things um but yeah but you clearly your husband has got some very good swimmers because you did you did manage to fall pregnant um and and then you had your son and I imagine that having him when he sort of finally arrived and having him alive in your arms and being able to bring him home must have been a, a whole bundle of mixed emotions how were those I guess those first few months after he was born for you and and did you still experience grief around Esme not being there and, and what could have been during that period? Yeah, I think it was very helpful again to have Mark to talk to you about that because I think as much as other people say they understood or they were thinking about Esme, to me it was it became quite apparent that they that she wasn't at the forefront of their minds in the way that she was for us because um, I remember someone saying to me quite soon after Jago to come home with us oh how does it feel to be a mum now and I thought hmm how does it feel if I punch you in the face <laughs> I just thought how, how could you how could you say that you know I was already a mum and you know like I said in the last episode as soon as I saw those words that I was pregnant on the pregnancy test I was a mum and so just because your baby dies uh, to me it doesn't take that status away and yeah I, I just felt like well he's the only one that knows how weird this is that there's there's no other word to sum it up in a succinct way it's just weird because you're you're looking at this new baby of yours thinking wow yeah they that that reminds me of Esme's and but then at the same time you're thinking well am I just sort of imagining that because we didn't really see much of her we didn't spend a lot of time with her but you're sort of looking so you're kind of looking for those similarities and those reminders because you want to stay connected and but then you know having gone on to have another baby I know that that's also totally normal you look for, oh, yeah, so this new baby looks like her brother. And it's just a natural thing to do within families. I don't know if you have siblings, but growing up as one of four, we would sort of laugh about 
things about us that looked similar or you'd, you'd meet people and introduce your sister and be like whoa they look so similar to you you know that's a natural conversation to have about siblings natural thoughts but it's weird when one of them has died it's just weird because you can't say it as freely as you would normally so for me and Mark having that other person to speak to to have those natural conversations with it felt good and to other people when you started talking about it with other people you could sort of sense the atmosphere change they would just kind of be like oh god she's talking about the dead baby again shall we go back to talking about the weather <laughs> yeah exactly and the only other person yeah. that I felt really comfortable doing that with is my mum and I, I'm so grateful to her for that and probably my younger sister a little bit as well but I think because my mum has had that experience, she's had four children, she can, she's seen them all grow up. And so talking to her about like, oh, I wonder if Esme would love doing that, like Jago loves it, or, you know, like just simple things like taking your child to the park for the first time and they're giggling on the swings or Ayla used to freak out when I put her on the swings at first. And (laughs) it was like, whoa, I didn't expect this. Jago used to love the swings and, then you can sort of have a laugh and say, oh, I wonder wonder what Esme would have been like. Would she have loved the swings or hated them? You know, you can kind of have the, you can sort of wonder out loud a bit more. It's, you're not sort of lonely with those thoughts when you have someone to share them with. And it can be a really nice thing to do. I think a lot of people, when I brought that up, they sort of assumed, oh, this is sad now. This is a sad conversation because we're talking about that baby that died and I think well no I'm enjoying talking about her I'm enjoying imagining what she might have been like for me that it's not suddenly bringing me to tears it's actually making me smile and I think a lot of people don't appreciate that maybe for some people it does make them really sad and I have I have actually had conversations with some other bereaved parents where they've said oh I can't I just can't let myself imagine it it's too painful but for me, it's maybe you feel similarly because I know you're a writer and you you like to get lost in a sort of world of imagination. It's fun. And so so maybe it's sort of less emotional in a way. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, to, my imaginary yeah. worlds involve fairies at the moment. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Although to be fair, that's 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 a bit more uh, palatable at the moment than the dark dystopian yeah. worlds I was writing yeah. about before. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so just to come back to your children, ha- so how have you gone about talking about Esme with them and explaining what happened to her, and how have those ch- conversations changed and evolved as they've grown older because they're still obviously quite young but particularly I think your son is is getting a little bit older now and probably to that age where he has more awareness of things yeah so Jago is five and a half now and Ada's three and I I have spoken to them about Esme throughout their lives but it's never felt like a right we need to sit down and talk about Esme now it's never felt like a okay this is the perfect time for that conversation it's just been added in to our day or when it's kind of come up randomly or we have things up around the house pictures of her hand and footprints I've got her hand and footprints on a necklace that I wear and so it just sort of 
they ask questions like, oh, who's that? Or, or, or I will say, oh, have you seen this picture? It's often me bringing it up more than them, I have to say, because I think, um, like I started to explain, it's she's not in their minds like she is with me. It's, it's difficult to get across to people that haven't been through this experience, but I think most people that I've spoken to who've had a child die, that child is just in your mind all the time in your heart all the time and I think this is something I've found difficult to explain when I've tried to talk about my grief with other people before as well that haven't been very understanding of it and very supportive they've sort of said to me you know you're you're grieving too much you're you're thinking about her too much I think about her sometimes too but it's during this time or I'll put this song on and then I'll have a little cry and I'll think about her and then I'll go about my day I think well it's not like that for me I can't compartmentalize her like that and for me it's not always this sad thing it's not like oh wow if I open that Pandora's box all the sadness will come out because it's mixed up with all these different emotions I feel about her you know there's pride there's joy there's I still remember so vividly that excitement of wanting to meet her and so there's a lot of positive emotions there I don't want to shut those off as well so yeah when I get opportunities to talk about her with my living children I will but it they don't always come up they don't always present themselves that easily and and that's been hard for me because I do want to talk about her and include her in our family but I think um what I've learned over the years is that it's it's not something that is going to be that helpful for them I don't think if I'm kind of pushing it on them and and I've I've sort of had to stop myself sometimes because Jago has been quite insistent no I only have one sister and for me that's really hard to hear but I'm not going to have an argument with a four-year-old about you know, you do have two sisters. How dare you forget your sister who died? Because, you know, I will gently remind him, like, oh, well, Esme is still your sister. I know she died and she's not here, but she is still your sister. But I think he finds he's found it quite confusing and verging on upsetting. So I've not, I've tried not to push it. Mm. It's quite an, ab- it's quite an abstract concept, I guess, for for him, and he's still quite young to kind yeah. of grasp that. And I guess, you know, even if you, you know, obviously you talk about Esme and sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're sad, but if he associates that with sadness then he doesn't maybe want to upset you, but it might perhaps, um, and I don't know, obviously, because I don't have older children (laughs) or any children who are are with me at the moment, but um, perhaps it's something that as he gets older, so say in five years time or, or, you know, 10 years time when he can really understand what death means he's got more experience of the world and and can perhaps understand more about what it meant to you then he might start asking those questions and actually asking about this sister who he's who he's never met and never never got to play with and never got to know um and I guess yeah and I guess this must be it must be really difficult because I think different families and different children go you know all children are different and they go through stages and and some are perhaps more engaged with that than others and some parents perhaps push it on them more than others and there's no right or or wrong way I don't think it's just as you said before it's just what's right for you 
and your family and kind of feeling your way through this as your children grow and develop. Yeah. And I, I remember when Jago started school last September, I mean, it was just a really bad, it's really bad time <laughs> because it's such a big milestone, a child starting primary school. And yet Esme's birthday is around the corner. So I was thinking, oh God, like how am I going to navigate these two milestones? And, you know, it's, it was Esme's sixth birthday. So it's not like I haven't been through a birthday of hers before, but I'd never been through a birthday when another child of mine had been starting school. So it feels like, well, yeah, it, you know, you kind of get used to certain things and you, you, you have these coping mechanisms, but then other things will get thrown into the mix and you think, oh, well, I, I don't know how to manage this. And I remember filling in um, an information booklet from Joel, the complete package about um, supporting siblings at school. And it's, it's mainly designed for kids who are of school age when their baby sibling dies during a pregnancy. So I'm filling in this booklet thinking, yes, this isn't really that appropriate for Jago, but I'm going to fill it in because <laughs> I want Esme to be known about. I want his teachers to know that she is part of our family and she might come up. And you also you also start thinking like, well, what if they do a family topic at school? And what if um, they talk about who's in your family? And he's then sat there thinking, oh, well, do I include Esme? And how do I talk about that? I mean, he probably wouldn't have the same thought processes like I do, but there might be that sort of hesitancy or slight anxiety about, well, they're all talking about their siblings that are in that live in their house with them. You know, how can I talk about my sister who died and she doesn't live with us? You know, no one else has got a family like ours, that kind of thing. So I, would, I just wanted teachers to be sensitive to that and be aware of it. But I remember a teacher that I spoke to about it at the time, she's, she said, oh, yes, um, that's fine. I'm really glad you told us. And I said, yeah, I mean, Jago doesn't actually talk about her that much and it might never even come up, but I just wanted to make you aware. And, um, and I said, he doesn't ever get sad about her. And she said, oh, no, and you wouldn't want him to be sad. And that really, that made me think, actually. It made me stop and think because I thought, sometimes I do want him to be sad (laughs) so awful but it's like it can feel very lonely missing someone so intensely all the time and Mark's the only person the other person who gets that and I thought well you know I'm so close to Jago in lots of ways and Ayla as well I want them to share that with me but it is it's again me being selfish and thinking yeah that's going to help me but it's not going to help them so okay you're right I don't want them to be sad about it you're right <laughs> but it was like a reluctant acceptance of that which really um yeah made me stop and think and re-evaluate things I suppose and at that point I was actually accessing some more counselling and it was so helpful just to go and just dump a load of that onto a counsellor because Mark at home sometimes he doesn't have time for it you know he's a teacher that term is a really busy term for him so I'm thinking like right how are we going to celebrate as and he's like well we'll just make her a cake it'll be fine we'll go and see her grave in the woodland whatever 
And I'm like, yes, but we have to plan it and we have to talk about it and think about it. And what are we going to say to Jago and Ayla? Like, Ayla, this might be the first year that Ayla's got a real sense of where we're going. And, and he's just like, don't overthink it. It's fine. But I needed someone to thrush all of that out with. And Mark has this phrase that he uses like, you know, Esme would want us to be happy. Yes, I believe that. I believe she would want us to be happy. But I think she would also understand that I find all of this quite hard <laughs> and that I need a bit of support. So can you actually support me, please? And I think Mark's grief, has that's been something where our paths have sort of diverged quite a lot over recent years. Like He's found ways to, to cope with it and get on with things a lot more effectively than I have I think and he sort of rolls with the punches a bit more like he did find it a big milestone when Jago was starting school but he was much more focused on right how are we going to get Jago settled in and all of those things where I was like where I, whereas I was thinking you know what if someone brings up the family members how's he going to cope and he's like how are we going to teach him how to read how are we going to support that he's much more focused on the here and now he's able to do that he's able to switch from this is the present this is the focus right now yes of course we still think about Esme we love her she'll always be part of our family but I can't deal with that right now this is the path we're on sort of thing yeah yeah I think that's that that's really interesting and and I think it is it's really both your feelings and both your perspectives and approaches to it are really valid. But yeah. I'd like to come on to your book finally, um, These Precious Little People, which you wrote. It's a beautifully illustrated book. Um, and you wrote it, I think, to help parents and other relatives explain the loss of a baby to children of all ages. So when did you decide that you wanted to write this? And how did you go about finding an illustrator to partner with and bring your vision of what you wanted to create into reality. Yeah, so I, I had it in my mind to create this book um, for a long time before I plucked up the courage to actually go ahead with it. And I would be sort of writing drafts of it and changing bits here and there. And then it kind of came to a head where I thought, right, well, I've got to just get on and do this. <laughs> no one's going to come along and wave a magic wand and make this happen if I want this to happen I'm going to have to push forward and get it done so I'd I'd put together a draft that I was happy with and then I, I thought right well I, there's no way I'm going to be able to draw pictures that match to the ones in my head there's just no way and my some some people in my family were very kind and saying but you're really good at drawing I was thinking no, I'm not. I'm just not. And I was very realistic about my abilities and also the time I had because, yes, I could have spent 10 years creating illustrations that I was finally going to be happy with, but I didn't have that time. I didn't have the abilities or the, the drive to do it in that way. I'm quite an impatient person. So I was like, well, look, I'm getting on with it now. So I just need it to be done. I need it to be done well. So I... I think it was in a Facebook group I was in where I just saw this woman post something about some illustrations she'd done, some artwork. I thought, yeah, I love that style. That's really in line with what I was thinking. So I had to look at her website. I just was scoping it out. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to contact her and see what she says. I've got nothing to lose. I'd thought about contacting a publisher and seeing if I could 
source an illustrator that way if they agreed to publish it. But I just, I didn't feel confident about my chances. I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm a nobody. This is a, t- a subject that not a lot of people are going to be keen to publish books on. I'm going to have to go self-publish route. And um, when I contacted this illustrator, she was really receptive to the idea. And we had a, a really good chat over the phone. Um, and I just thought, yeah, I've found the right person. This, she's going to make this happen. And she had some experience of publishing a book. So she helped me with aspects of that as well, seeking a printer and things that I had no clue about. And even doing the layout, you know, the final layouts and things like that. So I really needed her in so many ways. <laughs> and I also knew that I couldn't self-finance this because the illustrator needed payment up front, which is absolutely fair enough. I completely understood that. But I just I didn't have enough confidence to finance it all myself and have hope that I would get the money back. So I approached the charity Joel the Complete Package um, and just floated it as an idea really and they said oh yes well we've got some money to spend actually <laughs> so they had the, they had a grant from the National Lottery I believe and they had a time limit on when they had to use that money by otherwise they'd have to pay it back and they had to account for it all and everything so I, I feel like well actually helped them out give, gave them a project to invest in in a way and um, so it all seemed to just line up perfectly, the timing and everything. And I was so, just it just felt so right to be pushing ahead with this vision I had. I was, I was just getting more and more confident with uh, going ahead with it. And it just, I'm just really so proud of the book that's resulted. I love it. And I know that's, again, me selfishly saying, well, it's, I think it's a great book. But I, I've had a lot of positive feedback from other people as well. And I think I, I did try really hard to make it universally appealing in terms of the diverse illustrations, the text being very inclusive, because I, having come across all of these people um, who've lo- who'd had babies die in various ways, I thought, well, I... Uh, I've come across books before where it talks about a situation where this happened and I know that doesn't fit with their story and I know that's going to jar with them because that's not how it played out for them. And and I also spoke a lot with um, other parents who felt similar to me that they didn't want there to be this kind of, this neat sort of silver lining presented to people. This idea of, oh, you're your, your baby's an angel now looking over you or oh, yes, they're in heaven and um, they sent you uh, this beautiful live sibling. And I thought, well, not everyone goes on to have other children. And actually, those children are here in their own right. They're not – it's got nothing to do with their sibling who came before them. That's the way I see it. It's like they don't owe their sibling who died their life. That's a big – to me, that's a really big – thing to put on a child to say oh well you're here because your sister sent you or your brother was watching over you so they've made sure that you you arrived safely I think wow well okay I'm not sure I'd really like that (laughs) if I was a child Mm -hmm. if any of my siblings had died I don't think I'd like feeling like I was here and they're not 
and maybe there was some sort of bargaining that went on to make sure that I was here in in their place or I I just couldn't I, I just wanted it to be very clear like everyone deserves to be here everyone's precious in their own right and these people these babies who died it is very sad but we can still think about them we can still talk about them we can include them in our families we can do things for them but essentially they're gone I wanted to be quite sort of upfront and blunt and but leave it open for people that do want to talk about the fact they believe their babies are in heaven to go on to have those conversations if they want to yeah and I do think you've done a a really good job of that I think if there's one thing I've kind of what's really been brought home to me over the past few months of doing this podcast it's that everyone's story is different there are there are no two experiences of baby loss that that are the same um and trying to come up with a book that kind of encapsulates all those different types of loss which is non-denominational which is you know as you made this and and is appropriate for most situations is is a really difficult task so I applaud you for, for for doing that and it it really is a beautiful book it's quite interesting because I I'm an author and in the author community we often we often talk about our book babies so you refer to your book yeah. as your baby and some people feel a bit odd about that and they're like well it's not a baby it's just a product at the end of the day it's a business <laughs> and you get it out and that's fine but other people you know but at the end of the day you do whatever book you're writing most of the time you put something of you into that and something yeah. of your kind of heart and soul into that and you know I think this has not just got part of you in it but it's also part of Esme and it's her yeah kind of legacy from that as well I think it's really wonderful legacy for you to have created for her and a wonderful gift to give to other parents and families um to help them through the kind of rocky journey yeah thank um, you we are I'm afraid we are out of time Again. <laughs> but could you finish just by telling people where they can find out about the book and more about you online okay so I'm these precious little people on Instagram and from there you can um, access my website so the book has its own website it's available through the Joel, Joel the Complete Package shop. That's the most, um, that's the best way to get it. All proceeds go to that charity and um, all the profits that um, result from the sales of the book go back to them. And it, although it is available through Amazon UK, it's much more, it, it raises more revenue for the charity buying it direct from them. I would second that. <laughs> if, you buy direct, if you can buy direct from the author, always do that because yeah. they you know, they get more of the money at the end of the day. And in this case, you know, it's raising money for a, a very worthy cause. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Frankie. It's been really wonderful chatting to you about Esme and your other children and your creative work. Thank you for having me, Alison. It's really been great to chat to you as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>